Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the club that you're going to want to join. We're the voice of red disease and this jingle doesn't rhyme. NordPod, NordPod, NordPod. My name is Matthew Zachary, and welcome to NordPod, right here on the Offscript Media Network. Now, I've been advocating on behalf of cancer and rare disease patients for over 20 years. Why? Because I am one. NordPod is the official podcast of the National Organization for Rare Disorders. And a quick reminder before we get started, that if you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts because it helps other listeners like you discover the show. Now, let's get started. Hello, friends. Welcome back and welcome all new listeners to NordPod, the voice of rare disease. On the show today, Cam Redlosk is a designer, illustrator, writer, and disability advocate. So after five years of being consistently misdiagnosed and not taken seriously, she was indeed finally properly diagnosed with a condition called GNA myopathy, which is a very, very rare degenerative muscle wasting disorder. There's so much to unpack about her that can only be explained by hearing her story and understanding the journey she's undertaken to, and I hate cat poster slogans, make lemonade from her lemons. She has an extraordinary story. She has written incredible pieces, and her Instagram will blow your mind. She is the very definition of what it means to be an advocate. When no one expects to become one, and they're thrust into the world of rare disease, sometimes magic can happen. And now she's giving back and inspiring hundreds of thousands of people. Enjoy the show. Cam Redloss, joining me here on NordPod. We have so much to come, but I'm excited to have you on the show. Hi, Matt. Nice to meet you. I'm excited to be here. Well, I mean, we've kind of met before because we were on some panels, but I don't think we're like formally best friends like we are right now. Oh, we're definitely best friends now. We go back the whole 10 minutes. Maybe. I think so. I'm going to go with we might <laughs> have been on so. a panel, but like, you know, like that was like, like hyper COVID Zoom time when no one knew what was going on. So, <laughs> but we share a lot in common. You have so many incredible aspects to your backstory that are of like when bad things happen to good people, but how you cat poster and make lemonade from lemons. I hate cat posters. Someone has to invent a better phrase than lemonade from lemons, but whatever that is, you've done it. (laughs) But I want to start with your art. It's so nice to have a creative person, designer, illustrator, writer. Like, what was it like? Did you discover this in your single digits when you knew, I'm going to write, I'm going to be creative. I'm not going to be a lawyer. Do you have a moment when you were nine, I'm not going to be a lawyer? 
Not really. Um, I've always kind of been involved with art. I took it as electives in high school and in college, but I never knew it was something you could make money from. So I, you know, in the beginning in high school, I was kind of interested in, first I was into, interested in paleontology, and then I was going to be a psychologist or anthropologist. And then I got interested in, um, I was supposed to go to school to be an architect, and then that changed. So it kind of just happened. I remember worshiping Frank Lloyd Wright at some point between like fourth and sixth grade. I don't know what happened. I just got into Frank Lloyd Wright. And I decided to be an architect for like an hour at like 11 years old. It was great. It was a great hour. But, you know, <laughs> really, do you have architect heroes in your life? No, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of uh, designers and architects that I looked up to, obviously, Frank Lloyd Wright being one of them. But um, I don't know. I just It was just something that I thought I would go be an architect, but I had no idea about all the arts that you could be involved in from industrial design to other aspects to illustration. I just kind of fell into it. All right. So I'm going to stick on the architect thing one more time. You've traveled the world a lot. We're going to get to that later in the show. But have you ever visited a building developed and designed by an architect you admire? Yes. Um, uh, Frank Lloyd Wright, Falling Waters. You went to Falling Water? Yes. I'm so jealous. I've always wanted to go there. Wow. Good for you. Was it everything and more? Yeah, it was beautiful. His designs are completely inaccessible. It's kind of interesting. But, yeah. uh, you know, you can find some access to it. What a guy. So let, let's channel the whole, I'm a teenager, life's going normally, I'm as normal, what normal means to be 16, hard enough to be 16, like we're kind of the same age, so this was like the 90s-ish or the 80s-ish, life was very mm -hmm. different, the planet was different, and boom, all of a sudden, something's wrong with me, will someone take me seriously? Let's talk about that. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, I had played soccer for 13 years, I had three brothers, so I grew up in a pretty active environment. Uh, played a lot of sports. I was in the soccer team for 13 years up until um, varsity. And it was about a junior that I really realized there was something different on the field. I would think kick and it was such a delayed reaction. And it was so frustrating because never in my wildest dreams would I think that there was actually something happening. I was just blaming myself. Um, there's something wrong with me. I'm not working hard enough. And so I went through a lot of that through high school. Um, and then by my senior year, I was kicked off the team, rightfully so, just because my body had degraded so much. But again, I didn't know it was for any particular reason. I thought it was just me. And then it started happening where I developed foot drop, which is basically your ankle drops and you're dragging your feet as you're walking. So I was developing foot drop and tripping and my my bedroom was downstairs uh, in my home. So I was running up and down all the time and suddenly I couldn't run. So that became the journey of a diagnosis. And just a lot of people didn't believe me. It was about five or six years, um, including my own parents. They just thought that because it's hard to wrap your brain around. Like, how do you recognize that something is that's what's happening when you've never had experience with it? So even they had some confusion and you know, a lot of people just didn't believe me. So I kind of had to be my own advocate towards the journey of finding out what it was that was going on. Yeah, I'm nodding on the radio. Listeners can't see that I'm nodding my head on the radio. When I was diagnosed, I had brain cancer 24 years ago. My symptom was that I lost fine motor coordination in my left hand. And at the time I was a pianist and I couldn't arpeggiate. And it's like the weirdest symptom mm. to think. And, every, and at, at some point, one of the doctors said, oh, come on, there's nothing wrong with you. You're too young for this. It's all in your head. And he was right. I had brain cancer. But just to yeah. be so diminished and to mm -hmm. be told it's your problem, there's nothing wrong with you, go about your life. Becoming your own advocate is like, you know, you turn green in the Hulk, but you never knew you were the Hulk. 
Exactly. You pretty much have to. When you learn that a lot of people around you are kind of sad to say because it's the medical community, but a little incompetent in terms of interacting with people who don't know what they have. And bad bedside manners, a lot of blaming you, a lot of not being on point or, you know, um, active enough with, you know, proactive with dealing with the issues that your patient's having. So I could write a whole book on, on what I dealt with in terms of trying to get a diagnosis for six years. I had five different diagnoses. It was a terrible experience. Were you at one point accidentally diagnosed with cancer, got terribly scared, and then they said, oh, no, it's not cancer? No. All right. I've had those stories happen a lot on the show here. And like, <laughs> like, sorry, you have leukemia. Oh, no, 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 no. You're okay. No leukemia. And like, you're like going through these three months of horror and terror thinking you're dying. And then yet, wow. so you were diagnosed with something called GNE myopathy, which is a degenerative muscle wasting disorder. We have to get into what this is. Those may be words the average person have never, thankfully, have never heard of before. It used to be called something else with lots of syllables. I think less syllables is better. But talk us through, what is a muscle wasting disorder? So muscle wasting disorder is basically your structure is made up of bones and muscles. If you have a muscle disorder, uh, given what condition you have, you could it basically depletes the structure, the muscle structure of your body. For me, it's going to supposed to go all the way. So it's supposed to take every muscle. I have a very rare form of muscular dystrophy. It's genetic. And I'm actually a Korean-American adoptee, so I don't know my biological family's medical history. But the idea is that my biological mother and my biological father had it, but they didn't physically manifest in them. They were just carriers of the mutated gene. But together with two mutated genes, they created me. And for me, it physically manifested in me. Um, for some reason, it doesn't show up until a person's 20 or 40s, you know, the most productive time of their life. But you've had it your whole life. You just didn't know it. That's got to be terrifying. And again, we talk about how much we have in common. The cancer that I had, I was born with. And it didn't decide to wake up and ruin my life until I was 21. So to think that there was this thing in your body lurking for all those years, like a little alien being that just decided to wake up one day. Yeah, that's that's crazy. How did you feel about, did your body betray you? Um, so I've had, lived with this for about 22 years, and it's, it's interesting, a whole, you know, I've gone through the progression uh, with cane, and then cane and leg braces, and, and then a manual chair and a power chair. There's so many different stages of evolution, whether it's acceptance or figuring out what is going on. In the very first few years, probably the first seven years, it was mainly about survival, trying to figure out what it was I had. So I think I was very concentrated on that. I never really thought my body portrayed me per se. Never thought it like that, but it's just so abstract. Even when I was diagnosed with it and I, you read the prognosis and it says, you know, you're going to become immobile. It'll affect your arms, your hands, your fingers, your legs. You really can't understand what that means until it starts happening to you. So back in the 80s, 90s, when you were first diagnosed with this, my first question is, were you relieved to find out it was at least something that was wrong with you. And then the whole, what is going to happen to me next? Definitely relief. That's something that's very common among a lot of patients, um, especially a lot of rare disease patients. My condition affects, uh, at the time when I was diagnosed, 1,000 people in the world. Today, it's thought maybe up to 3,000, but it's, it's extremely rare. So um, it's a typical story for a lot of people. They just feel so much relief. For me, though, I had five different diagnoses. And after a while, it was sort of like, I don't know which diagnosis to trust. 
what would happen is I'd be with the doctor and clearly whatever they diagnosed me with and medication they were giving me wasn't working and, and in fact making me worse. And this is where you have to become your own best advocate. It kind of comes into play is I would have to leave them and I would go to another doctor and then it would happen again or another specialist or another hospital and I would leave them. So during the whole process, I really didn't know what I had until the fifth one. And even then I was like, can I trust that? But Mayo Clinic had diagnosed me and I was pretty confident that that's what it was. After I got my diagnosis, I pretty much booked a trip to Korea for the first time going back to my birth country. And ever since, I think I've had this frame of mind of living my life, not necessarily thinking about what it's going to prevent me from doing today. Yeah, never tell anyone they can't do something is one of my favorite things to say and to be told. Like never, they, they told me you'd never play piano again. I was like, I started playing piano again. They told me you'll never have kids. I have twins. Like, like, did they ever oh. tell like, the they, proverbial they, what were you told you'd never be able to do? Oh my goodness. Um, well, my first, what was it? Oh yes. This diagnosis, my physiatrist, basically, uh, when he heard about it, he said, uh, oh yeah, it's very rare. I've heard of that. Um, g and myopathy. And he basically told me to, uh, at the time I was going, I was in Detroit, uh, college for creative studies. Uh, majoring in an automotive industrial design career. And he basically told me, knowing that that was so uh, such a difficult program, told me to quit college, take a desk job, and live a less ambitious life. Literally saying that. That's what they all say. To, it, it's so fascinating to hear medical industry, they say that to people when they work with ill and disabled people all the time. So it just goes to show from their standpoint, we're just patients to them. We're just like a chart. We're not like there's no human condition involved when they talk with us. And so, yeah, they all just said, just give up. Yeah. Empathy in medicine still needs work, even though, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I kind of forgive the 90s and 80s for being the 90s and 80s, but empathy in medicine still needs a little work. So you were not 80 when this happened. You were a young adult just getting their life started. And that's a very different point in time than if you were, like, say, retired on Medicare. Did they treat you like you were a teenager? Have you been treated as a young adult the entire time, or has it just been you're a biological data point and we don't care how old you are, we don't care about your fertility, we don't care about your relationships, dating, all the stuff that's hard enough when you're in your late teens, early 20s, when you're, when you're not sick? They didn't, this, definitely a little bit of the child aspect, um, because most of the time I was going to these appointments to, by myself. The only one who I felt really treated me well was the Mayo Clinic. That was an amazing clinic that I went to for three or four days. They did all their tests and they basically had a diagnosis two weeks later. But what other, they mostly, um, how do you say it? Uh, because I was a woman, they would use that. Uh, one, one story was I was going to Detroit Medical Center and the neurologist lead chairperson of neurology department who was often not around because he was golfing. Um, he was my doctor and I had waited for months to get uh, results from a, bi- uh, uh, muscle, um, uh, biopsy done results. And it was months and I hadn't learned later, it should only take two weeks for the results. But they had kind of been telling me all these stories. Oh, it's not in. I would go into my appointment knowing that it was such a struggle for me to get in there. And I was going through an intense uh, college program. I would show up and he would say, oh, we don't have them. So one day I just kind of cried because I was just like, it was like eight months later. And I was like, I don't have my results yet. And he just said, oh, are you, are you crying? Because he knew my parents were getting a divorce at the time you know, cause it, cause of your parents. And I was like, no, it's because of you. Oh, wow. Oh man. <laughs> and so, yeah, a lot of that where people just don't 
take you seriously or um, also because I was a woman, they would think that, you know, I'm being, you know, exaggerating or being a little, you know, not knowing what's going on when a lot of ways I knew more than they did about what was happening. All right. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with Cam. Back with our guest after the break. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. All right, we're back with Cam. First question of the segment here. When did you discover, if you did discover, that you're not alone and here is the rare disease community and the rare disease universe? So pretty much I knew nothing. I didn't know another disabled or rare disease patient until I moved to California. I had basically the same doctor who told me, you know, to quit college and and lead a less ambitious life had told me I would never, ever meet another rare disease patient with my condition. And I would most definitely never see um, treatment being done in my lifetime. And when I moved to California for a, a design opportunity, I was uh, working for Mattel at the time as a toy designer. I had suddenly ran across two patients who were two brothers who have the exact same condition as me and had started a nonprofit. One was a doctor and one was a research scientist dedicated to raising more awareness about our condition and treatment development. And that kind of just was the Katamari ball of like me and advocacy, which I've been doing for about 13 years now. And I never made a decision to get into advocacy. I had just met the brothers and they asked if I could do a, a brochure for them. And it ended up becoming a whole new branding campaign for their organization that I launched and created for them. And then I just, I just, I've just been doing advocacy ever since. It just kind of happened. I just, I just understand how important it is to talk about this stuff, especially for rare disease, because it's so rare. No one will know about it unless you talk about it. It's also a dopamine hit to know that you can have this this power you didn't ask to have. Like you didn't you didn't wake up one day and say, I can't wait to have this and deal with this so I can talk about it. Here you are again with the cat poster turning lemons into lemonade. How did your art transform or did your art transform? You know, artist to artist, I started writing completely different music 
after I was sick. And as I started to heal, my music reflected my healing. Was that a similar arc for you? And what specifically did you start to see coming out of your brain? For sure, I identify with that very similar experience. While I've always been involved with art, my degree was in industrial design, which is drawing, but you're designing a product or a car, an outside exterior of something, and then you help get it made. But with art, art, I wasn't really doing that until I became an advocate. And how I became an advocate after I met those two brothers, I began blogging because I thought no one responds to the name of a disease or an organization name. We're inundated all day with names of diseases and stuff. It has to be about a story. So I was the very first blogger for my condition. And then I started thinking, well, some people react differently. They're not readers. Maybe visual will give it to them. So I began becoming a self-taught illustrator. And all of my illustrations are wrapped around moments from my progressive rare condition. And it could be just emotional. It could be um, a lot of it is emotional and just, just with stages. And so for me, my disease has really given me focus on where I want my design creativity and skills to go towards. In the end, I still get to do what I want to do. I'm still doing art. I'm still, you know, I'm working on a children's book as well. But the purpose is to help someone else who may feel like they're alone or just being diagnosed and trying to traverse the aspects of what do you do. And so my experience with my disability and rare disease has definitely directed and led all of my work now. Yeah, and I don't want to understate how much content you've produced. That's just extraordinary. We're going to link to your website in the episode description notes, but uh, Cam Redlosk, R-E-D-L-A-W-S-K, Cam was with K, K-M. You've done documentary films. You wrote probably one of the most compelling, heart-wrenching stories, uh, pieces for REI this May. I read the whole thing. And, you know, about oh. your traveling. I, and I do my homework. That's my job. I'm a host. I have to Thank you. you know, what the hell's going on? <laughs> Who are you again? Right? Have we met? And, right, right. You know, you're very prolific. It, it mellifluously pours out of you for all the best reasons. What type of response have you gotten from the content you've put out there and from your art? I find most people find themselves in either or or both. The great thing about art is a lot of artists, they're very vague on what their art is. And for me, when I started illustrating, I didn't want to be vague. The purpose is to educate and share what it is that I'm experiencing. So I would always write a little bit of what was this, what did this drawing mean to me? Um, what was I thinking when I did it? However, what I love is it's not about my art so much or what it is to me as what it means to someone else and how they apply it to whatever they're going through. And almost always, I always hear like, I'm so glad I saw this or I read this because this is exactly how I feel. And that's the typical statement that a lot of us advocates, I think, you know, you too, in, in terms of how you shared, have probably received of people saying like, thank you, that makes me feel heard. And not everyone can share or, or be outward or share and, or, or talk about it. So to be able to see someone else do it makes it better for them. I remember back in my day, back in my day, that the ADA fought so much to just get basic rights for people with disabilities. And when they started to make the curbs, you know, slanted for wheelchairs, society was like losing its mind. Like, why are we doing this? We're doing this because it's the right thing to do. You know, and here we are all these years later and here in New York, there are still curbs that don't have ramps on them. And it's utterly ridiculous. But you, you've you taken up the reins on some really impressive, I would almost say like really stick-poking initiatives with like the TSA 
And I, I just, can you anecdotally talk to us about like the stuff you're doing? Like the TSA does not have the best reputation from the start. So <laughs> when you're a disabled person and you're going through TSA, they're probably not as equipped to understand how to be not horrible. Yeah, lack of training in a lot of ways. So have you had activism in that sense? Is there a movement to really help the TSA get better trained for this? Is there some kind of sensitivity mandates that must happen? I mean, in general, I think the whole uh, disabled community, I've seen a lot more articles talking about wheelchairs being damaged and, and, and why travel needs to have accessibility, why the ADA kind of needs to intersect a little bit more with DOT and, and transportation rights and things like that. In general, the entire community, I, I've seen a lot of media posts talking about recently, it's a hot topic, and people are starting to become aware of the aspect of all of the horrible stories and lack of rights disabled have when we travel. So we're saving the best for the end of the show with about your travels. I, I have to talk about COVID. It's like, it's not even the elephant in the room, it's just the room <laughs> at this point. There's no more animals in the room, it's the, the whole room. Telehealth became a really big thing, and everyone was, was kind of forced home. How did COVID affect the, the disability community specifically? You know, whether it's a personal story you can share of your own or what you observed from your sphere. In terms of travel, I think the biggest one is just a lot of us can't travel or are wary of it. Uh, obviously, after the vaccine, people, are, you know, they're more open to it. For me, I probably won't get back into international travel until next year, just trying to be like, just, you know, watching around and observing um, a lot of airlines are having issues or just the fear of being shut down in the country. Or I, I traveled a couple of times this year because of my father's was passing in January. And then we went back to Michigan in, in June because of his um, uh, funeral. And just that little bit of travel, domestic travel, airlines were having such a hard time. We it took 17 hours to get back to California because they had all shut down, partly because of weather and partly because airlines weren't um, strapped up with the amount of help that they need for the influx of travelers that was suddenly happening in, in the summer. So all of that has kind of made me a little wary about doing any long distance traveling until maybe next spring. But I think in general, it just stopped, stopped a lot of traveling for disabled people. And from a like day in the life perspective, like, you know, your your wheelchair breaks, you know, did the place you go to get it fixed shut down? You couldn't get it fixed. I'm making this up out of my head. But, you know, like, how was your specific life interrupted by COVID and how did that impact you? Did you not able to go to a doctor, for example? Yeah. So like everyone, um, there's a lot of things like, especially for the disabled community, because the industry, the medical industry has to shut down a lot of things to just give all their attention to COVID. A lot of disabled people couldn't go to their doctor's appointment. I didn't go to any of my neurology appointments. I weakened quite a bit because I couldn't do physical therapy uh, for over a year and a half. Working arrangements, I was already working from home. I freelance from home. So that didn't change as much. But, you know, just in general, it's just, just also the aspects of the insensitivity of everyone not caring I think that's been the number one thing for a lot of disabled or high risk people with chronic illness is just worrying that, you know, and seeing society as a whole not care that there are some that are more apt to getting this than others or more seriously than others. Um, so I think that's been one of the biggest letdowns, I guess, for a lot of disabled people and, and me in general, just feeling that way. Yeah. Well, well not on my favorite part of the show. I, I just, listeners take note. Cam has 
the most therapeutic Instagram page, I think, in the history of says me. And it's just Cam Redloss, K-A-M-R-E-D-L-A-W-S-K. We'll also link to that in the episode notes. But, you know, social media is absolutely wretchedly terrible. But this is social media done right. Talk to us about the whole, I'm going to just own this and go around the world. And I don't know who takes your photos. I don't know how this is all done. It is extraordinary. Talk us through what it's been like to go all over the place and just share these epic images, these epic experiences in your own words. Nature provides you a safe haven to marinate and simmer in your thoughts. Yeah, so like when I was going through this in the beginning of college, uh, again, I'm 42, that was 21 years ago, um, aging myself. But uh, at 20, you know, when I was getting diagnosed, I always kind of had a desire. I was always a curious person and a desire to explore and travel. And I thought I would be a backpacker as soon as I got done with college, um, mostly because my mother was kind of strict. Um, so I didn't get to do a lot of that stuff when I was younger. And then a disease comes along and I'm just like, what, are you kidding me? So I was being responsible, doing my college degree first before traveling. And then I come down with this life-altering condition that I didn't even understand was going to alter my life quite as much as I did it at the time. So when I was diagnosed finally by Mayo, I booked a ticket immediately to go to Korea, which is where I was born and abandoned. I was in an orphanage for about four years in, in uh, Daegu, South Korea. And so I thought, okay, if I'm having this condition, then I better get going, get my butt moving and start traveling and seeing things. So Korea was the very first one that I did. I left a week later and I was there for two weeks. And then after that, I moved to California and that's what began my huge road tripping extravaganza and all this time I never had any one to look up to no disabled figure I didn't know that you could travel we were just I'm just a naturally curious person and I would just grab my husband and say like I want to go see this let's go see this and we would just figure it out if it wasn't accessible we would just do the parts that we could and that's kind of mostly what it's been about I don't look at I don't do tours I don't do travel tours I don't look up a lot of it in the beginning was just we're just leaving we're going to go there and we're going to see what we can see and do what we can do and that's how it began and again the receptivity is just off the charts i again i can't state enough to the listeners you have to check out her instagram read her articles it has been just an incredible way to be the best definition of an advocate what's the future for you you mentioned at the top of the show that there's little research in this space, is there now any research in this space for your condition? You know, in the beginning of my advocacy, we thought we were on the brink of some treatment development. And as we all probably know, with treatment development, things change after a year, few years. So that landscape has changed. We thought treatment was closer. And so when I realized it was much farther away, I had been a fundraiser for this nonprofit. I had did a grassroots fundraiser called Bike for Cam for six years where my friends biked from San Francisco to LA. And then one of the years I joined them on the road. And so I had done a lot of that. And at that point I was like, okay, so there's no treatment directly on the horizon. Well, my hands are going and I did go to school for art and creativity. So I decided to get out of nonprofit and become more of an independent advocate so I could focus on also using my art, which is in turn for my advocacy, but at least using my art and things that I had you know, projects I could create, like my children's book, or, or traveling more and sharing and that, encouraging other people to travel. So basically, you do everything. That, that's, that's you, Cam. Everything. <laughs> I do everything. 
<laughs> Screw my limitations. I'm about everything. I do everything. Yes. All right. Cam Redlosk, designer, illustrator, disability advocate, writer. I'm just going to throw in toy designer. I don't know what you designed, but thank you for designing toys. Maybe my kids play with them. I have no idea. You are just an extraordinary human being, and I'm so thrilled to have welcomed you to NordPod. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. That's all for today. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. NordPod is a product of the National Organization for Rare Disorders and Offscript Media. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Leslie Nordstrom. Andrew McDowell is our senior producer. Valerie Don Francesco is our marketing manager. Darren Tun is our production intern. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Matthew Zachary and the post-production team at Offscript Media. Our theme music is by the Salvatones. Learn more about the music of the Salvatones at salvatones.org. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. Hit us up at contact at offscript.com to share comments, feedback, and make guest recommendations. For more information, visit nordpod.org. <laughs>